A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the Times Red Box podcast. I'm Carol Walker, keeping the throne warm for Matt Chorley this week. Coming up on today's podcast, we went across the four corners of the UK to speak to reporters for Disunited Kingdom. A great chat about what they're all doing for the Jubilee and some other big local stories that are making the headlines. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, let's speak to our columnists. And it's Wednesday, so it's Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton. Just let me ask you, uh, Alice, do you get on with your neighbours? Is it all sweetness and light? Well, actually, do you know what? I've just seen my neighbour farmer today because we are discussing because both of us lost chickens last night to a fox. So, yeah, we do get on. We we have to get on. Um, and um, we, I'm more worried that they might, the fox might take our puppy, which I think he thought was a bit soft, I have to say. Uh, um, but shared... yes, no, we, we, we talk about farming together. Shared stories of the escaped chickens. What about you, Robert? Yeah, we got on pretty well. We've got the we've got the uh, a WhatsApp group for the streets, which we started in COVID, like uh, a lot of people did, and that was all very nice. And now it's kind of it's more about now. Do you know a good plumber? And which is met with a deafening silence because nobody wants to give up their plumber. Uh, but it, yeah, it's nice, and we don't we don't talk about farming in in the middle of Hackney, but uh, we do talk about <sighs> cats. We talk about cats and we talk about the kids' playground and it's all, yeah, it's good. Uh, well, I'm glad it's all um, all harmonious. Uh, the only thing I find is that the WhatsApp chat is just, there's just so much of it that I can't keep yeah. up with it. I've muted, I've muted <laughs> I have the, to I've mute muted. it. Yeah, I've muted the alerts on that one, but I have a look at it, and it's all—it's all very friendly. Um, Alice, your column today is all about nostalgia. Whether um, we're spending too much time with this unhealthy obsession with looking backwards to bunting sepia photos, uh, imperial measurements, and the rest. Well, yeah, I actually love a bit of bunting and I quite like sponge cake and I like those ladybird books. But the problem is we've gone too far, really. So we're constantly talking now about is this the 1950s or the 1970s or are we returning to the 1990s with Challenge Annika? And actually, you know, Boris is probably the worst offender, I think, on this. So he is obsessed by the past. Every single thing that he does is about the past. So it's either, you know, let's bring back Margaret Thatcher's right to buy or, you know, we want grammar schools back or imperial measures. And no one's ever thinking about the future anymore it just feels rather kind of depressing and demoralizing that we can only go backwards at the moment we don't feel any sense of being able to go forwards and it's not i don't want to celebrate the queen we do want to celebrate her jubilee but even she is a very forward-looking person i think she must be feeling there's a bit too much wallowing in nostalgia 
Yeah, there's a bit of a danger there, isn't there, Robert? If the government seem to be yearning for better days, decades past, instead of trying to suggest yeah. what they could do for the future. It's strange. I mean, it's not just the government. I think we all do it. I was thinking uh, this morning that I wondered if, if in 1920, if in 1922, as opposed to 2022, they people still regularly made reference to things that had happened in the 1850s or the 1860s, which is. I mean, that's what we do. We we, we, we reference things which were 70 years ago. You know, we talk about the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. And I just don't think people used to do that in the past. I mean, 100 years ago, did they really hark back to things that had happened 70 years prior to that? Uh, I think people were looking forward. And I think Alice is right. Uh, I mean, I was struck by one particular stat in her excellent column, which is that 14 million people in this country, which is getting on for a quarter of the population, have been born since the millennium. Uh, they just, you know, they don't. People's points of reference are, are just are very different, and uh, and we don't. I think the government and we in the media don't necessarily take enough account of that. Yeah, and Alice, I, I wonder whether I mean, we hear the prime minister opened his uh, one of his cabinet meetings by saying, "Anyone here remember the seventies? And he was talking about blackouts and strikes. I mean, mm. it, it's hardly a, it's hardly a positive, forward-looking idea, is it? And and perhaps part of the reason why um, the Tories are, are struggling to get younger voters. Well, that is the problem, and I think Boris Johnson is particularly bad at this. That he just loves talking about the past. And I explained in the column that I used to play tennis with him, and he always insisted on using his old sort of Dunlop Maxiply four wooden tennis racket. And he wears the oldest clothes, and he's he's got this sort of obsession. You know, it's like you know, it is like you know, why why would you buy anything new? Why would you want to modernise? And you know, that kind of you know likes using an old phone and and there's a sense of that but actually it's just really irritating in the end and I think Jacob Rees-Mogg is the same that they're harking back to another era when we want them to pull us into the 21st century I mean we're 22 years into the 21st century we can't keep going on about the 20th century yeah and uh, Alice in her excellent column highlights the fact that Top Gun has been resurrected from the 1980s which actually you were writing about uh, yesterday Robert that's right. I went to see it on Monday morning in an empty cinema in Borough Market, just around the corner from the office. And uh, I suppose I was expecting there to be... Usually when these sequels are made by a kind of ageing action hero, they're usually a bit self-referential and a bit self-knowing. And uh, there's an element of kind of irony and humour. And there's actually none of that at all. Uh, Tom doesn't. Tom Cruise doesn't go in for that. It is as if... The intervening, I mean, Top Gun first one came out in 1986, so that's what 36 years ago, and it is as if the intervening 36 years had never happened. Uh, you know, the, the the guys still behave in a macho way. They still get the girl. They still it's all toys for the boys. Uh, they're still wearing you know uh, faded denim and white t-shirts and flying jackets and aviators. And you think, well, this is a pure nostalgia trip. I mean, I actually quite enjoyed it because I quite like a bit of that. But, uh, but, but, there's no, but Robert's uh, worrying about his body, aren't you? I mean, the problem is that actually Tom Cruise looks fairly amazing for his age. And that's, you know, that's the unfair thing, isn't it? He's playing beach volleyball and he looks the same age as the 20-year-olds. And you're like, really? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't about... feel, yeah. And I think we're lucky because the women aren't in, the women from the original Top Gun have been phased out for the next Top Gun because yeah. obviously they're not quite up to it. Um, so there's a sense that actually we get off slightly, you know, easier. But I quite like seeing Tom Cruise looking that good. I have to say. I bet you, yeah, I suppose. I bet you. I bet. Yeah, I suppose you do. I mean, the one concession, to be fair to Tom Cruise, uh, the one concession to the 
to uh, social change is that the, the female lead, uh, Jennifer Connolly, is kind of more or less age appropriate for somebody of Tom's age. So it's not a 25-year-old, which I guess, you know, grateful for small mercies. And, and maybe, Alice, uh, I mean, it's phenomenally successful. I have to confess, I haven't seen it yet. Um, but it, it's been phenomenally successful. So, I mean, perhaps the government is, you know, it's wallowing in um, the, the, the sort of macho days of the 1980s. Um, you know, maybe the government's got no, something with the nostalgia. No, because basically Tom, yeah, Tom Cruise has changed. They say to him, the future's coming and you're not in it. But he does adapt. So that's the thing is we all have to adapt, really, I think. So I'd say there's no, I don't mind a bit of nostalgia. I love some of those old films, but actually the whole point is you've got to move on, don't you? Yeah. yeah um, having said that, I felt a little bit cheated because I've, I've spent the last 30 years being told that that macho stuff was kind of uh, old fashioned and you had to be kind of all sensitive and, uh, uh, and, and humorous and all the rest of it. And that's what, that's what uh, was appealing. And it turns out, uh, that's not the case. You know, you just have a decent set of pecs and a white T-shirt and away you go. Well, John's been in touch and he says the new Top Gun is fantastic. Don't get what it, your guy's saying at all. No, I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it's not fantastic. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it, is, it is fantastic. I'm just, uh, I suppose I'm surprised that it's so popular given what we thought had changed. Um, Alice, uh, let, let's talk about um, when Boris Johnson is not... Um, wallowing in, in nostalgia. He, he, he's trying not to be uh, dragged down into the mud of the continuing fallout from Partygate. And um, this morning we've had the... Uh, uh, we've learned that his ethics advisor, Lord Guite, who's uh, his advisor on the ministerial code, has threatened to quit, um, saying there's legitimate questions over whether the Prime Minister breached the ministerial code and he's clearly very unhappy with the way the Prime Minister has dealt with this. Um, what do you make of this, Alice? Well, my problem is that when we say he's been drawn into the mud, he is the mud. I mean, that's the problem with Boris, is that, that he causes all this and then we feel like we're being belittled and sort of we're being pathetic talking about it or worrying and we're saying, what's he actually, you know? There's a particular story about checkers when the housekeeper in checkers left partly because there was something in the bathroom that she didn't like. So... You know, we're all drawn into these ridiculous, petty stories or, you know, Lord Guite must feel the same, that it's still about parties and cake. and um, But it does matter. It really matters because part of it is whether or not Boris Johnson lied and part of it is whether he actually followed his own rules that the rest of the country followed. So I can see why Guite's in such a difficult position now that anyone who comes anywhere near Boris Johnson gets sucked and drawn into his mud and and it, and it sticks to them and somehow he manages to get away with it. Yeah, what did you make of this uh, latest row with uh, Lord Guite, who couched his criticism in the most extraordinary kind of Whitehall language, so that it, we, we had to, we have to get Henry Zeffman and so on along to, yeah. to decipher it all? But he's clearly absolutely furious. Yeah, I mean, he asked John, he, he's been asking Boris to uh, explain uh, how his behaviour was not a breach of the ministerial code, and as far as uh, reading Henry's analysis, uh, he didn't get a response. Uh, so he got annoyed and then put it in his report that he he, he wanted a response and he, and he felt there was a need for one. Uh, it seemed to me, I, I mean, I think slightly he's kind of, he's annoyed personally. He's also asserting himself because everyone sort of thought he was a bit of a lapdog and he's kind of saying I'm not. And maybe also with the, with all these the new letters and the way uh, the Tories are manoeuvring and the stories this morning about more more people saying Johnson should quit. Maybe Lord Guy has sort of seen the way the wind's blowing and 
wants to uh, assert himself. Yeah, um, we had uh, Hugh Merriman on the programme a short time ago. He was saying he's not putting in a letter because mm. though he's not happy with what's been going on. Um, he doesn't think that what the country now is, needs now is a Conservative Party leadership contest. Um, Alice, but we had Lord Haig uh, telling us yesterday about the, the fuse fizzing and getting close to detonation. Yeah, I think it's getting closer and closer. And the problem is, is so far, Boris Johnson's always managed to get out of it. I mean, he, his one claim is that he does win elections. And I think the problem now is that the MPs are looking at the polls and thinking that just can't be true yet again, that so many of them are going to lose their seats. And they do worry about that. And part of it's self-interest, but it is their job. I mean, that, that they do need to keep the seats to keep going. And so it'll be massive self-interest. Also, there's a sense that actually it's sort of ridicule now that it's not just about Boris Johnson. The whole Tory party now does look very sleazy and run out of ideas and depressed, really. And Robert, there is a danger that we, we get to this. It seems very likely that there'll be some mm. confidence vote uh, perhaps next week, but that Boris Johnson then survives it, but a significant chunk of his party vote against him, and he mm. kind of limps on. Yeah, I mean, that was the, what's what, I mean, Theresa May got 67% or something, I think, of her, but she, and then she was gone within seven months. So... You limp on, but I think you, it would be it would be it would be pretty fatal. I mean, I think he probably there will probably will be a confidence vote, and he probably will win it. But you need to win it uh, spectacularly, don't you? Otherwise, you're looking at you know Labour's just going to point at them and say, "Well, a third of you uh, people don't want this guy," which yeah. is fairly which is pretty terminal, I think. And I'm down in Tiverton, and the by-election, I think, will make a difference. So the Tiverton... Yeah, the by-election, and, and then there's the... by-election. Sorry, Alice, there's the by-elections, and then there's the the, uh, the Privileges Committee. So it's going to keep going. It'll keep going, and it'll divide our listeners, um, some of whom are absolutely fascinated by this. Um, others immediately get in touch to say, why are you still talking about it? Um, but uh, because the story keeps moving, we like to keep you in touch with what's exactly. going on. Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton. And you can read Alice's column and Robert's column in The Times. All you need to do is get yourself a subscription or pick up a copy of the paper, of course. Now it's time for Disunited Kingdom. From Land's End to John O'Groats, St David's to Southend-on-Sea, and Belfast to Bognor Regis. England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. This is Disunited Kingdom on Times Radio. Now it's time for Disunited Kingdom, where we head to the four corners of the UK to speak to reporters about what's going on where they are. And today we have got, representing England, Charlotte Green, local democracy reporter at the Manchester Evening News. Hello, Charlotte. Hi, Carol. Good morning. In Wales, we have Kieran Jones, head of news at Wales Online. Kieran, good morning. Morning, Carol. Nice to be with you. Great to have you with us up in Scotland, Times political correspondent John Boothman. Hello, John. How are you? Very well. Great to have you with us. And in Northern Ireland, we have um, Kiva Quinn, broadcast journalist at our sister station, U105 Belfast. Kiva, hello. Hi, good morning. How are you? Um, very well indeed. Thanks so much indeed for joining us. And 
of course, uh, one of the big stories coming up over the weekend is going to be the the Jubilee celebrations. Um, I'm assuming it's happening in all corners of the world. Um, where should we kick off? Um, perhaps uh, in England. Uh, Charlotte, tell us what's going on in uh, in Manchester. So, I mean, we've got events coming out of our eyeballs, basically. We have hundreds of street parties. There's loads of uh, DJ events. There's lots of music events happening. But I particularly like the fact that um, one hotel in Deanscape is holding a royal pooch party for dogs, specifically. <laughs> um, and Not just corgis. Well, corgis get in free, apparently. So if you do have a corgi, that might be a, a good one to go to. Um, and then this is actually slightly down the road in um, Cheshire, in Holmes Chapel. But they've managed to install a life-sized woolen knitted queen on top of a post box, complete with a crown, a sash, a handbag. Um, and I find that that's been pretty uh, incredible as a kind of thing to prepare for the Jubilee. Um, extraordinary stuff. Um, there, there is, of course, a big concert in London but you've got um a big concert in Wales as well haven't you Kieran yeah absolutely I mean as well as the spread of street parties and uh, lunch lunches and afternoon tea gatherings and things like that the, the sort of showpiece event here if you like is a, a concert being held at Cardiff Castle on Saturday night which will have everything from a, a Welsh male voice choir and an orchestra to stand-up comedy and performances from Alad Jones, Bonnie Tyler, and an appearance from also from everyone's favourite drumming weatherman, Owen Wynne Evans, he of Children in Need fame. So that promises to be a, a fairly entertaining event for all. Yeah, it sounds like. Are you going to be there, Kieran? I'm not going to be there for that. I'm actually going to be at a, a Jubilee picnic in the park on Sunday lunchtime. And it's interesting in, in, in Wales with the Jubilee because in some ways it's probably not even the the event this weekend that's going to inspire the greatest levels of patriotism here because there's also a uh, a rather big football match here in Wales on on Sunday as well um <laughs> with the Wales men's national football team facing either Scotland or Ukraine in of Cardiff course. on Sunday afternoon so uh, as well as the you know the pomp and circumstance of the the jubilee there's um there's also that and i think uh, i think there's probably quite a lot of patriotic fervor and excitement for for that as much as for the, the jubilee too but not so much in Scotland, apparently, John. Um, tell us what's happening there. I think you're right, Carol. Uh, things more muted in Scotland than they might be, certainly in many parts of England. Um, I don't think we have a great tradition of street parties. That's not to say that there's a great deal of affection for the Queen north of the border. She was in Balmoral last weekend. I think in places like Balmoral and some other pockets of Scotland, there will be some celebrations, but... I think, a bit more downbeat compared compared to the rest of the UK. And is that just because um, a lot of people there are also going to be focused on the football? Well, they're going to be certainly going to be focused on the football. I mean, um, ho hopefully having street parties tomorrow in Scotland as a result of the, the game tonight, and hopefully we'll be in Wales and Scotland. But I think probably in terms of affection for the Queen, yeah, that's high, but more generally in terms of what happens with the monarchy going forward. Maybe people in Scotland don't have quite the enthusiasm that other people in the UK have for that. And because you've, you've got this um, Scotland-Ukraine match uh, uh, tonight, is that? Yeah, we have indeed. I think I'm um, just looking at the clock here. There's eight hours uh, and 35 minutes till kickoff. And I can tell you, I'm certainly getting nervous. I Watched my son getting a bus to Glasgow this morning, replete with a Loch Ness monster hat. 
um, and his Scotland jersey. The whole country's up for this, of course. The world, as the papers are reporting this morning, is against Scotland and want to see Ukraine winning. And whilst we have some sympathy, of course, everyone um, just about in Scotland has sympathy for the Ukrainians. We still want to win the match. We haven't been of to a course. World Cup since 1998. Uh, well, that obviously um, uh, absorbing rather more attention than the Jubilee celebrations. Um, what about in Northern Ireland, Kiva? I mean, is this... Are these Jubilee celebrations going to cut across the political divide there? Um, well, a lot of events are taking place in shared spaces here in Northern Ireland. We're going to see the Royal Avenue of Belfast City Centre kind of do a throwback to 1950s. There'll be people in costume. Hillsborough Castle will have the same sort of theme running. But again, people will be doing the likes of swing dancing and 1950s events. But whether everyone is willing to join in, I don't believe they are. You know, there's always been that divide here with people who either support the royal family or just don't want to acknowledge it. So some will be celebrating and some won't. Yeah, indeed. And um, let's move on and talk about some of the other stories happening there. And Kiva, while you're talking about that, yeah, some one community really celebrating and, and, and perhaps others not. And that really are a reflection of just the continuing political divisions. And we've got this stalemate at Stormont. The Assembly um, met briefly um but there was uh, the whole the whole system was scuppered once again by the DUP who refused to elect a new speaker refusing to take up um their places in the devolved administration that's right yes that's right yes so on monday there was a second recall of our stomach assembly since the election and you know, last week, the DUP leader, Sir Geoffrey Donaldson, had come out and called this recall nothing more than a stunt. And so he made pretty clear then that the DUP was absolutely without intention of going forward and electing a speaker and restoring power sharing without any action on the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is, of course, the sticking point. So Michelle O'Neill has come out. She is the leader of Champion in Northern Ireland. She said the people need action. They don't want protest. And the DUP is still sticking by saying they have a mandate, they've promised there will be action on the protocol to their voters. And it's just going to be a case of waiting to see how this plays out because no one really seems to want to make a move. The key point will probably be next week when we see the legislation brought forward about the Northern Ireland protocol and maybe it could entice the DUP to make a move. But again, it's just going to be a waiting game. So that is the legislation at Westminster with the government threatening to scupper the protocol, which, of course, governs those trade arrangements between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK, the checks at the seaports and so on. Government's been threatening to override the protocol and we are waiting to get that legislation next week. Exactly. Yes. I mean, it's so important, especially for unionists here, because they feel that that trade border effectively separates Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK, which obviously goes without saying is something they don't want to see happen. They believe that the electorate come out and voted for them because they wanted action on that. They said the last two years they haven't seen as much action that's happened in the last two weeks as when they took this stance to protest against the protocol. So it's just going to be a waiting game. You know, Sinn Féin could have this recall on a daily basis, but it's all about striking the balance. So they want to hold the DUP to account. They want to show this want to get back into government, get back to business. But if they were to do this recall every day, you know, it would kind of become somewhat of a farce. It would lose momentum and be able to ridicule. So it's just about finding that balance.
Yes, uh, and of course, uh, that story will undoubtedly continue on to unfold next week. Um, you've had the big um, spending announcements in Scotland, John. Um, tell us what's emerged from that. Well, what a spending review. Uh, yesterday, the Scottish Government announced uh, its four-year spending review plans. Uh, the run-up to this was talking about a £3.5 billion black hole in the budget and how they plug that. Well, they gave us some of the answers yesterday. There's going to be a 7%, 8% cut in police and fire service money in local government, um, across higher education, and a whole load of others. Uh, uh, the Historic Buildings uh, Organisation, which looks after Edinburgh Castle and all our castles and archaeological sites in Scotland, facing about a 25% budget cut over the next four years. Um, really, really, really um, big, big cuts coming in Scotland from next April. Um, all as a result, I think, and certainly this is what the economists are saying, of generous promises on spending before, poor income tax uh, uh, revenues and optimistic forecasting. So it's not a good place if you work in the public services in Scotland, all these things to come and coming soon your way. The Scottish Government's answer to some of this, some public sector reform, selling off lots of buildings they're talking about. They're talking about voluntary redundancies because they're against compulsory redundancies. But this is a huge, huge deal for anybody who works in the public services in Scotland. And indeed, if the um, SNP government is going to start inflicting cuts like that, that presumably, I mean, it, it's not what many voters would expect of an SNP administration. That's going to hit the SNP standing, isn't it? Yeah, you would have thought so, though, of course, the SNP and the Greens who are in government in Scotland are blaming the Westminster government uh, for a financial settlement. We've heard that <laughs> many times before. Um, it's still the case. And this is one of the things the opposition are saying, that they've still managed to find £20 million in the budget to conduct an independence referendum. Now, we'll see whether that happens at all. Um, but I think maybe caught quite a few people in Scotland on the hop. They didn't think that the results of this review would be severe as this. And of course, the other thing we have to hear is, um, and this won't come till December time uh, when they start talking about this in earnest, is what it will mean for income taxes in Scotland, because the Scottish government in Scotland sets those rates, already higher earners pay more in income tax, and maybe we'll see a bit more of that going forward. It's certainly the case that people are saying that if Richie Sunak um, decreases income tax south of the border, that that might not happen north of the border. Uh, fascinating stuff. Um, let's turn to Manchester, where you've had an IT crisis at Manchester hospitals. Um, and, of course, there's the continuing chaos at the airports there. Yeah, so it's really turning into a bit of a perfect storm, both on the health side and coinciding with half-term people wanting to go on holiday to find people have booked holidays thinking that things have settled down with COVID. And um, what they're being faced with is TUI cancelling six flights a day, telling people sometimes up to, you know, only a couple of hours beforehand, getting a text to say the, their flight's being cancelled. Um, and it's also seen a continuing problems of bag, a shortage of baggage handlers at Manchester Airport. And, and that's been so bad that people have been stuck on the tarmac for hours and hours, unable to leave their place. 
plane because their baggage can't be unloaded. Um, in one incident, we saw that the co-pilot of a plane actually had to help the luggage on after the plane had been delayed for 32 hours um, to make sure it could take off. So it really is something that's sort of happening in Manchester, specifically with the airport and nowhere else somehow. We're not quite sure why it's being handled so badly and, and why maybe it's not getting as much support as if it was happening at Heathrow or Gatwick or a really big London airport. Yeah, I was about to ask you why it's particularly bad at Manchester, because that does seem to have been uh, by far the worst hit in terms of queues and cancellations. It was partly really exacerbated by COVID, that during COVID, the airport, which is um, almost majority owned by the 10 councils in Greater Manchester, laid off lots and lots of staff after the furlough period ran out because it, it basically said no one's flying, we can't afford to have all this stuff. And then now it's been very, you know, it's been really struggling to recruit those people back in. And it's not, an, you know, it's not a nice place to work at the moment. You're being faced with very, very stressed passengers. There's, there's so many reports of, of children getting incredibly distressed because they've been having to sleep on the floor in the airport for, for sort of over 12 hour periods. And you can see why now people don't want to be tempted back in, especially if they had previously worked there and, and, and been given the shove during COVID. Um, let's head to Wales, Kieran. I mean, Brad, um, the uh, airport in Cardiff doesn't seem to have been affected by these sorts of problems yet. Not in any way to the same extent, really. But I mean, unfortunately, that's kind of a reflection of the fact that the airport in Cardiff is, you know, just simply doesn't have the, the range of, flights that um most other airports do i mean i think i was actually on this very show on this very segment a few weeks ago talking about the, the difficulties that cardiff airport is kind of facing in terms of attracting both airline operators and and you know with that passengers back post covid i mean there was an incident yesterday actually where a um a tui flight that was uh, on the tarmac at cardiff and, and had been boarded and was set to set to leave for tenerife was initially put back I think an hour and then maybe another hour and then it was cancelled by TUI on the tarmac for operational reasons as they described it um, and people were literally told to disembark the aircraft and and go back home rather than go on holiday so um, there have been some of these issues it's just not quite as pronounced you know we're, we're seeing more issues with people going across to Bristol and finding big big queues and having to arrive very early in the morning and things like that there but uh, unfortunately, it kind of is symptomatic of the fact that Cardiff Airport probably still hasn't quite regained anything like the capacity and number of routes it had prior to the pandemic. Yeah, and you do really feel for those people um, finally getting to a long-awaited holiday, perhaps one that's been cancelled several times in the past, and then you spend half of it at the airport and then find it's been cancelled. Um, while Bradford is celebrating becoming UK City of Culture, um, they're not so happy about the announcement in Wrexham, are they? Because they, they missed out in the final. It, it's been a really tumultuous 10 or 11 days for, for Wrexham because they were finally awarded city status as part of the Jubilee uh, commemorations last month. So I think that was May the 20th, having previously failed in 2000, 2002 and then 2012. And then they were obviously in the mix uh, and made it to the final four alongside Southampton, County Durham and, and Bradford in the, the City of Culture bid um, for 2025. Uh, and then ultimately lost out yesterday, albeit they get the first of these new runner-up payments of £125,000. But on, on top of all of that, the other element of sort of cultural stardust in, uh, in, in Wrexham in the last year or so has been um, 
the kind of Hollywood takeover of the football club with Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney coming in, um, albeit the, the loss of uh, culture status comes after a, a fairly kind of difficult few days because the, the football club watched on by no less than David Beckham and Will Ferrell, first of all, lost the FA Trophy final 1-0 at Wembley to Bromley and then lost 5-4 to Grimsby in their National League playoffs on Saturday. So all in all, I think it's been a fairly um, a fairly up and down uh, couple, of, uh, couple of weeks for people in Wrexham, really. Um, let's just um, check in on what's happening at the airports in the other parts of the UK. Um, Kiba, what's happening in Northern Ireland? Is Belfast OK? Um, we had a few issues with Belfast International with their EasyJet flights. Um, I think it was Monday or last Friday. So we actually seen all the flights for that day right up until nine o'clock cancelled. It was part of that IT system failure. Um, in terms of queues and staff shortages, it seems to be impacting people who are travelling down to Dublin to make their journeys. We've seen a queue on Sunday um, that had, I think it was at least a few hundred, possibly even thousands of people miss their flights and maybe a five, even a six hour wait. Yeah, gosh, it's the last thing you need, isn't it, when you're just hoping to get away on a break. Um, what about there in Scotland, John? Are the airports there being affected by this? Nothing nothing like anything like the scale that we are talking about in other places. I, there has been an ongoing issue, I think, that everyone's had, which is just this issue of actually finding people to work in some jobs at airports and in the travel industry in general. Uh, there's been issues about uh, really not having available staff um, who can do things like baggage handling. And I think that's a, that's been a problem. But I think that's a problem across the whole of the UK. And of course, it's not just a problem that's confined to this particular industry. It's something that we hear more and more about all the time. There was an interesting story from Glasgow Airport the other day about from the Unite Union about having uh, managed to win a huge increase in pay for some staff who worked at the airport. And I think that's a direction of travel in order to be able to attract more people to go and work in that industry. Time to hear about some of your fun stories. I know there is a league table. Matt Chorley's hidden it away somewhere. We think that Northern Ireland is on top at the moment. Um, But we would like to hear your fun stories and I will be awarding points and we'll, we'll, we'll check out the league table and let you know who is where. Now, who'd like to go first with their fun story this morning? I'm happy to chip in, Carol, if you like. Head on um, then, Kieran. Because uh, th- this kind of um, does sort of lead in from what we were talking about, some travel disruption there, albeit this isn't uh, airport related. But, um, you know, lots of us have experienced or known of somebody that's had a uh, that kind of sick feeling in the pit of your stomach when uh, something goes wrong with your holiday. But spare a thought for uh, Louise Turner and her family who made the trip from their home in, Nor- uh, in Norfolk to Newport on the Isle of Wight only to discover that the accommodation they'd actually booked was more than four hours away in Newport in South Wales. Um, (laughs) So uh, a rather unfortunate oversight on their part, and it meant they ended up having to fork out £1,000 to stay in a hotel on the island for for six nights. Uh, And they said they've never had a refund on the the guest house that they actually booked here in Wales, which they never came to stay in. Um, You know, the the operator booking.com, who they booked through, said in a statement that the the full address and a map were sent in the confirmation email and added, though we were sorry to hear of the customer's disappointment, we would urge all customers to thoroughly check all details before confirming any reservation. 
Ouch. Especially um, exactly where you're supposed to be going. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, that is that is that is kind of, um, you know, step step one. Make sure you book and travel to the correct place. Um, uh, OK, so that that's the that's the that's the misbooking, the wrong Newport. Um, let's where should we head next to uh, Scotland? Uh, John. Look, I just love the things that people like to buy around about celebrations. And for me, sometimes how naff that is. I, I saw um, uh, an advert and I actually saw on the television um, there uh, half an hour ago that in some places they are selling coronation chicken dog food for oh. the Jubilee. Um, now, that's not to get denigrate. Um, people, for example, in Balmoral who have invented a Jubilee pork and cranberry sausage. But the other thing that's caught my eye in the past couple of weeks is just, and I, I just think it's funny, people, I think, go a bit mad, is that people apparently are willing to pay a £1,000 on eBay for a Queen Barbie doll to celebrate the Platinum Jubilee. And I just think sometimes maybe a wee bit more money than sense. Um, surprised when everyone's struggling to make ends meet. I'm not sure I dare feed the dog. Um, coronation dog food, isn't that curried? That sounds like a risky <laughs> one to me. <laughs> Let's head to Northern Ireland. Um, Kiva. Um, well, a few drivers in the north coast of Northern Ireland were a bit concerned at the weekend when they thought they saw the earth and sun travelling down the Glenshian Pass. But um, it turns out it was actually an art exhibit and it was a six mile model of each, I believe, on the back of a lorry. So it's part of an art exhibition moving from Derry down to Belfast. Um, it's seeing a world record book, I believe, with people dressed as astronauts with the most number of astronauts. And the art exhibition itself is actually moving on to Cambridge once it goes to Belfast. So it might be something to keep an eye for. Uh, extraordinary. And uh, heading to Manchester. Well, obviously, um, you know, the political situation in, uh, in in Westminster and in Number 10 is kind of what's been attracting most of the attention of the national papers. But in Greater Manchester, we've got our own um, political storm brewing, specifically over Lee, which is in, in the borough of Wigan, wanting to secede from Wigan, which is something that um, Tory MP James Grundy has been petitioning Boris Johnson for. Um, for some time, even though it's been part of Wigan since 1974, but he, apparently it's lost its identity. I mean, Lee is quite a small place, but um, it would like to be independent. So we're looking at a kind of Lexit happening, um, something that um, Wigan MP Lisa Nandy thinks is frankly bonkers. Um, and so she's 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 uh, told um, the Northern Gender podcast that she thinks Mr. Grundy might have lost the plot over this, wanting to build a wall between <laughs> between Wigan and Lee. But he does have the support of lots of people who live in Lee and lifelong um, leafers, as they're known. So um, we're going to see what happens with that and whether we're potentially seeing, you know, a whole other identity formed there. And the mayor of Manchester, didn't he used to represent Lee? Yeah, he used to represent Lee. So, I mean, technically, I don't know if it would even be part of Greater Manchester anymore. Um, it could the you know could be the very borough that he? I think he still lives in Lee. Um, that is no longer part of Greater Manchester, which would be interesting. Uh, fantastic stuff. Well, I'm I'm struggling here now. Where am I going to award? the points um, because it is the essence of disunited kingdom. I'm going to give four points to Manchester for the Lexit story. 
Um, I'm going to give uh, Kieran three points because that's all about location, location, location. Newport, which Newport are you heading to? Make sure you check that one out. Um, I I dread the thought of the coronation dog food. So we'll give John Boothman two points and Northern Ireland on this occasion, um, it, despite the extraordinary um, art installation moving down Northern Ireland. Um, you'll have to content yourself with one point. Uh, it's been a close contest. It's been great to speak to you all. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. That's all we've got time for on today's episode. I'll be back tomorrow for a Jubilee special. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.